but for whatever reason, it just reached this point in my life where the idea started to really terrify me. And it would kind of, I would think about it quite a bit. So just the way I did with my mental illness, I kind of had the same equation of you just have to get really close to it and really become friends with it. So I left the job that I'd been doing and I went straight for a mortuary. G'day everyone, Craig Rowe from People With A Passion and if you haven't yet subscribed to the channel, please take a moment now to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be notified when new interviews are uploaded. Today's guest is an author and the host of the podcast, The Mania Podcast. It's actually a podcast that my mother has been listening to and absolutely enjoys. And uh, he basically creates stories around true stories from the 17th and 18th centuries. And he explores the happenings of those and writes stories around them, fictionalizing some aspects. And he then narrates them as part of his podcast. He is quite articulate and well-read, which you'll see from the interview. He also uh, lives with bipolar too, and he has actually knocked on the door of a mortuary and now works as an undertaker to help him deal with the questions around life and death. Please take time now to sit down, listen to and or watch and hopefully enjoy this episode of People With A Passion with Harlequin Grimm, A Necessary Undertaking. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. Welcome to People with a Passion, Harlequin Grimm. We'll call you Quinn for short, is what you've invited us to, so I don't have to use the tongue twister every time. Uh, how are you going, mate? I'm fantastic. Thank you. That's good. The reason I've got you on the show is because you actually have a little bit of a taste for the macabre and uh, mm. want to explore that a little bit. You have a podcast called Mania, and it actually explores the dark side of humanity, which is things like crimes and death and uh, mm. you know murder and things like that. But you've taken it to uh, previous centuries and you're actually an author. And a lot of the stories that you describe on your podcast are actually written by you. Is that correct? Yeah, all of them are written by me, actually. Yeah. So let's start with a few things, and we'll start right there with writing. When did you start your passion for actually writing? Well, I think that was at least six years ago. So right in the middle of adolescence, I was starting to write quite a bit, and it was pretty much all I did in high school. I didn't have any social groups or anything like that, so writing was kind of the, it was very therapeutic and very pure. You know, it was just something that I could kind of, escape into, I think. So I, I really, at the time, didn't care about making a career out of it or anything like that. I mostly wrote fantasy stories uh, because I grew up on uh, fantasy video games. So I love to write about elves and, you know, warfare between strange races and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were some of the games that you were playing that some <laughs> listeners made? This is great. <laughs> so I'm sure this will be... A lot of fun for some listeners. I used to play World of Warcraft um, like a true addict. And I would play, and then uh, League of Legends as well. It was kind of like an offshoot of that because it's also a bit more fantasy-based. But I think World of Warcraft and also uh, the Elder Scrolls series, so Oblivion and Skyrim, 
those all influenced me quite a bit because they're filled with this sense of just wonder. Mm. And yeah, so I, I loved those games. Interestingly, I noticed that when you do a search on Google for Harlequin Grimm, the actual result <laughs> comes up. What's the reference there? The, the, so that, that was a complete coincidence. And when I was searching for a pen name and that came up as the only thing that was, you know, you know, besides what I was going to be, I was pretty sad because it was referencing a piece of armor from Skyrim. It was a bit of a letdown, but um, that actually had no relevance to it at all. What sure. is the relevant? Explain to people why the choice of that pen name Harlequin and the last name Grimm. That's interesting. Like nobody, I've talked to quite a few people on their shows, and no, no one's ever bothered to ask me that. Um, so. The, the whole th idea behind that is I, I love chaos archetypes like jesters and fools. And it was just something that kind of always resonated with me. Somebody who is kind of foolhardy, brave, maybe even naive, but just kind of goes after things regardless of what the, the current risks are. And I definitely feel that way. I'm not hyper intelligent by any means, but I certainly have a lot of energy. And... Then there's the idea that they kind of, despite being this character of whimsy and entertainment and joy, they kind of are the embodiment of a lot of tragedy because they're the joke of everything. And I find that sort of thing very empowering because if you can be absolutely confident in yourself and not be afraid to be the butt of a joke, but still have the courage to go after your passions, to me, that's kind of a recipe for like an unstoppable force. And so... Harlequin kind of is the embodiment of the chaos archetypes. And the second name, Grimm, is sort of a paradox of that because a lot of the stories that I tell and things I'm interested in are very dark and not at all whimsical. So I, they kind of have this rhyme and sing-song uh, feeling to it once you put them together, and I just thought that it was perfect. Mm. A harlequin is more or less a pantomime clown is what my research shows. So behind Absolutely. you, people aren't familiar, there are masks <laughs> up on, oh, the, yeah. on the fireplace there. So that is the sort of character that we're talking about is this mm -hmm. like almost a court jester that a king or queen may have used or that was used to entertain the masses back in, mm -hmm. a, I don't know what period, but probably 17, 1800s, I imagine, or Victorian type period. Yeah, for sure. I think it may perhaps even before then. You know, maybe even in medieval courts. Yeah. We the so the grim side of things we'll get onto a little bit later. I'm still keen to hear about your book. So, fantasy. You started writing the fantasy, the elves, and things like that. Mm -hmm. I noted that in your bio that you actually indicated that you wrote a number of books, put them on Amazon, and then made a decision to withdraw those books, and then you started on a different path. What was the mm -hmm. justification for actually changing script, if I could say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I worked really hard to create novels that I could be proud of. And I wrote at least three before I decided to try one for publishing or even just self-publishing. And once I had one, which I felt was permissible to kind of present to people and maybe even put a price tag on it, I had it up through Amazon and I had gotten some local offers through publishers in the Oregon area. Um, but the costs related to local publishing sort of match the cost of self-publishing in terms of marketing and all those boring things you would have to do. So I opted out for Amazon. Um, but it just sort of felt after a while 
that when you're practicing and practicing all the time, you start to really see just the advancements in the quality and the skill. And after a certain point, I just couldn't be proud of what I had put up. And I felt bad asking for money for it. And when I came up with the idea for the podcast and those stories, seeing as how that would be very active and engaging, constantly changing and interacting with people on a weekly basis, I just thought, you know, once I get the time for another book that is more in line with my current philosophies and my skill level, I'll have that published. But right now, I'll just take the other one down because it was kind of just a stain on my on my record as a writer, I think. It didn't represent what I'm capable of now and certainly not what I might be capable of in a few years. And I think, not to go on a tangent, but after a certain point, one has to just let the past be the past and own what you've done. But that was kind of teetering on the edge of making yourself look like an idiot and, you know, uh, being a work of art. So I took it down. Interestingly, you never know, but in the future, that might be worth more than anything else you ever write. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it is possible. It's not uncommon for those mistakes uh, in your perception in the artist's eyes to actually be worth more than the art that they later create in life that's been given a lot more street cred, I suppose. Is the, yeah, the, the word. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so don't throw it away and keep, keep it as a body of work because or, or gift it to someone who who may potentially see value in that later, even though you might not want your name associated with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is part of the story of Harlequin Grimm. Well, so. Yes. So you've delved into a different style of fantasy, which is dark fantasy, if I could use that description, which is mm-hmm. more geared around death and murder and true, true well, actually false crime because fictional. Truth is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. But um, so when you write fiction, often you can draw on truth. So what are some of the inspirations for the more recent stories that you've written for your podcast mania? Mm. Well, the so the the novels that I was sort of writing in the background of the podcast, those are more dark fantasy. But the podcast itself is more I would call it historical fictions. Um, but a lot of the episodes are actually just historical and just based in, in fact. The only thing that's fictitious about it is that to create something that's more interesting than a Wikipedia article, I have to weave it into some kind of a narrative. And so to do that, I will create scenes and settings involving the characters that I've researched, you know, um, and I'll put them in their locations where they existed and just kind of bring it to life the way a storyteller would with anything else. So that's where the fiction comes in. And if there's any points of their lives um, that are sort of that history kind of forgot about or left out or we don't know about and it's crucial to that current period of time, then I will fill it in with fiction and just completely fabricate it. But at the end of the episode, what makes it somewhat more interesting than just learning about a subject is that I will go into what was real and what was not so you can kind of actually leave maybe a bit more educated about whatever topic or individual it was. Yeah, sure. So interestingly, I listened to a couple of yours and I listened to one and something stood out for me and you can tell me whether it was fictional or fact, but sure. one of the characters names Shepard Smith and he's a journalist <laughs> and there was a Shep Smith on, on Fox. Really? Up. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So he's an anchor, but he's gone now, but oh. so, <laughs> Fox News. So yeah. So when I, when I uh, heard that reference, I'm thinking, is that fictional or truth there but i'm not sure you can clarify was that a real character or or can you remember the character 
if I recall correctly, he was sort of just um, placed in there for effect, I think. Okay, nice. Yeah. So your journey to writing that stuff, you're trying to also in your narrative put yourself in the perspective of some of the characters and particularly the ones that are potentially committing the crime from what I can glean is, is that intentional? Is that what you're trying to do is, is look through the eyes of the characters? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think that the, the perspective of people who do horrible things is somewhat valuable and that sounds a bit twisted. Um, and it's meant to be, and I think it's because I think as a society and just as people we're very judgmental and assuming and that can be poisonous, uh, in many ways. So kind of taking people who have done horrible things or committed murders and kind of getting inside their head and really fleshing out their whole life journey, you know, from start to finish, I think gives us a valuable exercise in compassion and perspective kind of just brings us down to earth because in a way, None of us choose our, our genes or the environment which plays off of those genes. So the general idea of, you know, determinism is kind of that you don't have much control over the person you become in a, in, um, in a very large sense. Um, and it can be kind of confusing to, to wrap one's head around that. But free will or not, practicing uh, an open-mindedness about such characters and how they get to that point in their journey is just, I think, a lot more fascinating than the typical archetypes we hear about. Heroes and the protagonists who are good, I think um, we hear those stories on a daily basis. And although it's good to be a good person, uh, I just think that those stories are kind of overdone uh, for me personally. And so I like to have characters that are morally gray or a bit insidious, um, a bit more narcissistic and self-driven. I just, I don't know why, I just have a fascination with them. It's interesting how you describe those traits because I think there's more of that exists in the real world than we care to see. And maybe that's what the fascination actually is. And maybe it's the whole question about mortality for ourselves. So mm. what drove you to to this path then? Because if you were in the fantasy realm, what's pushed you towards questioning, you know, not just life itself, but death well what drove me towards it was i was when i started to um get my diagnosis for having bipolar 2 and realizing that there was an actual problem i had to deal with and it wasn't just mood swings it was a you know it was a severe dysfunction in my biochemistry whatever you want to call it and uh, experiencing those depressive swings was really intense and kind of becoming aware that it was almost like this ghost or this thing haunting me. It would just attack. I would wake up and feel that or in the middle of the day, it would ruin my day. And I felt drawn to this idea that I had to really make my, my peace with it. And instead of begrudging the fact that I felt this way all the time or had this experience to begin with, I thought I just really had to own it and kind of almost take advantage of it because out of all of those suicidal thoughts or those darker places there's a lot of inspiration and you know it's it's a form of you can call it energy or whatever you like to call it whatever it is it's certainly quite powerful because it can drive one to to 
do horrible things to themselves or think horrible things about themselves. So I thought, you know, it seems to be merely a matter of directing that energy somewhere else. And it leads you to feel a bit more curious about darker subjects in general. So it kind of led me away from the more fantastical, the more whimsical and imaginative and kind of more into our world and history and people who could kind of share that experience. Because I would imagine that a lot of people who do crimes or are killers certainly have a touch of maybe being psychopathic, manic. They are probably experiencing a wide variety of emotions that are very intense, um, similar to an artist. And so I kind of just struck a resonance with them. And I I thought that uh, despite of all their horrible, depraved actions, very colorful, fascinating people, it was sort of out of a survival mechanism, I think, because instead of just begrudging what I had to deal with, I wanted to kind of embrace it. I've I've not heard anyone explain that concept of energy that, you know, that whole energy that drives you down a dark, you know, hole, I guess, if when we talk about depression and leading towards mm-hmm. suicide, to have it described as something that's almost like there's a drawing towards that or an energy and you're now exploring what that actually is and saying, well, this isn't, Yes, it's an experience for many, but it's actually something that that you feel is absolutely real to you. But rather than allow it to, again, like I see with a lot of people with a passion, be a negative, you're saying, well, if this is my experience, I'm going to not only understand it, I'm going to actually spin that energy into something that is more positive. And mm-hmm. you've taken to another extreme. So what, what I find with a lot of people with a passion is they tend to go in boots and all but you've gone in boots gloves and apron and all and you've become an undertaker yes we had to go there so you are actually yes. working now 12 hours a day and you've mm-hmm. gone into that environment do you want to explain why you knocked on the door of of you know an undertaker and said mm-hmm. i i want to work in this industry yeah well um as somebody who's more agnostic when it comes to religion and the afterlife, I I don't know what happens after death. And there was a, for some reason there was this period in my life where I was just deeply terrified of it, which was strange because even after I'd become an agnostic, I, I had grown up Catholic. Um, even after I'd become an agnostic, I was quite fearless when it came to death, and I just accepted it as a reality. But for whatever reason, it just reached this point in my life where the idea started to really terrify me. And it would kind of, I would think about it quite a bit. So just the way I did with my mental illness, I kind of had the same equation of you just have to get really close to it and really become friends with it. So I left the job that I'd been doing and I went straight for a mortuary like as soon as I could get my hands on that kind of job. And it's been wonderful and very therapeutic. I, it sounds horrible. I mean, but I see some terrible things, a lot of gore, a lot of tragedy and grief in profuse amounts. Just because for me, it's been coming to grips with real, the reality rather than just kind of trying to make peace with it without ever seeing it or touching it or smelling it. It's extremely therapeutic and very empowering. It sort of allows me to feel like I'm in control since the nature of the job is literally handling the corpses, so in an eff- in essence handling death, you know, physically and metaphorically, 
handling death. So it, it was just this, it's been this amazing process of coming from fear and anxiety and every time I would approach a corpse, adrenaline, heart racing, sweating, and just shaking, not knowing how to talk to the family, not knowing how, how, do, I, how do I touch them without feeling um, disgusting or, or gross, all those feelings you would imagine to just being completely calm and serene with it. And that's transferred somewhat easier than I expected into my just more philosophical and existential dealings with death, feeling calm, thinking about it, and feeling in control. And how does that translate into your writing? Because you've got an experience now as a writer that a lot of writers who are in that space may never have experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it has. Um, I noticed sort of immediately that a lot of the tropes and common cliches when describing corpses just sort of didn't apply after I uh, got a lot of experience with them. And so I don't take too much pride in many facets of my writing, but I do think lately I've started to take pride in the fact that just on a sensory level, I can bring that realism to the stories. And since a lot of crime stories or stories that deal with paranormal events or things in that nature are going to involve a corpse here and there, uh, I like to be proud of the idea that I can actually bring the physical sensations and the mental interpretations, what it feels like to look, feel, and be around and touch and smell one different stages of decomposition, certain things happen that you wouldn't expect that don't really get talked about in most fiction or, or most um, narratives in general. So it's allowed me just to be more realistic about it, um, I think, which is kind of I'm quite happy about. You talk about life and death as a comparison and the concept of once life leaves the bottle, uh, the body, once like mm-hmm. actually I said the bottle there, so probably the vessel. So <laughs> yeah. that was a slip up. But mm-hmm. so once life leaves the vessel, which is the body, uh, mm-hmm. that it becomes an object. So do you want to explain that concept of how where a lifeless body can almost just be dealt with in that way? Sure. Yeah. And I think depending on the person, this could be incredibly depressing or quite maybe uplifting, which is always interesting to see. Um, but truly there are a few descriptions of corpses, cadavers, bodies, whatever you would like to call them that rivals the description of, not because I chose it, um, of them being objects sort of objectified. There's something deeply inhuman about a human body. And that sounds strange and paradoxical, but that's just the intuitive feeling that I get from it. There's just... It doesn't feel like a person anymore. It feels like an it, which sounds terrible. Um, but there's just something about bodies that just, they lack that total feeling of animation to the extent that I would, I would imagine that if you got someone who had never seen a human corpse before and you put them in a room and you got somebody who had just died and somebody who had just fallen asleep and somehow set up this wonderful science experiment and you asked them to tell which one it was, I bet they'd be able to pick it out. I bet they'd be able to tell. I think there's just something deeply animalistic and intuitive about how we feel around death. There's just something about it. Um, it's kind of made me made me realize that there's not more. There's not really uh, a multiplicity of, of races on the world. There's the living people and there's the dead people, and that can kind of bind us together because we're sort of we're sort of always quarreling with this force that is gonna gonna claim us all at one point. 
And so when I see a human body, I just think that's another mask of death. I don't think that's the person's body. I just think that's another representation of death right there. And that's sort of how I also detach and, and I'm able to feel comfortable around any number of bodies. Your fellow workmates, <laughs> sounds strange to mm-hmm. workmates, but they are, or, or your employer, they, mm-hmm. have, they come from a religious perspective whereas you're coming from an agnostic or atheist type perspective. So how does, 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 is there any sort of, not necessarily conflict, but, but do you want to talk about the two different approaches, I guess, how they perceive mm. the process of what they're doing as opposed to yourself who doesn't see life beyond death or doesn't know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not, not all my coworkers are religious, but you're totally right. There, a few of them are, and um, that definitely plays into it. Um, it's, I think what, what it comes down to is just the sort of the psychological processing of it. I think that religion makes a very, a very tidy and organized space of existentialism and death, I believe. It allows people to feel very comfortable about where they're going and what's going to happen. You know, even if they don't know what an afterlife looks like specifically, they know they're going to an afterlife. They have that, that faith and that belief is a very comfortable and reliable train of thought where you can go whereas for someone who's more of an atheist uh, every time you approach a body and you're reminded of mortality and what's coming for you and you see it again the process is another well i don't know what just happened to that person i don't know if they have a soul or if that went anywhere or if anything's happened and so for me when i was first working the job and training with it um alongside the the person who was training me had religious views um i think not just her. I don't think she was just comfortable because of the years that she'd been doing it, but it's my belief that she was comfortable because of her convictions and what she thought happened after death. And in a way, I envy her for that. Because for me, the process of coming to grips with it for the first few weeks was very difficult and almost traumatizing because there's, there's knowing and being a rational person, understanding that death is coming for us all, and if you're one of those people who's not sure if there's anything afterwards or it could be just total blackness, um, that experience of facing it all the time and really coming to reality with it is shocking. And it just kind of it just drives that nail into your skull a little bit. You uh, do give a good example of the saying that was a title of a book, Fight the Fear and Do It Anyway. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, I was given that book for Christmas once. It's a good book. <laughs> yeah, so that that uh, that for me is like the extreme of it. It's like um, mm-hmm. if you if you really want to jump in deep, fear fear stops us from doing so much. So yeah. you know, for you to actually tackle something where you like you say that you had the physical uh, when you first started your role had mm-hmm. the physical side of things to overcome before the mental as well or both. That's pretty extreme for most people, particularly you really had a fear of it. So it's almost overcoming a phobia to the extreme from the way you've described it. So how has that helped you overcome that fear? Has it or does it just open more questions for you? Well, I think the, the you know, the double-edged sword of being sort of a dry atheist is, is kind of that, um, though you have less things to worry about because perhaps you have less religious dogma um, there's less praying and practices and all that. You always have the uncertainty of everything. Um, 
So it doesn't change that. I think, I think it's good to be comfortable with questions. And it just kind of has helped me practice being comfortable with not knowing and accepting that I don't know what happens after, after death and, and being completely all right with that. It's, I think, the best way to describe it probably is uh, I learned to taste, you know, like getting used to black coffee. It's really bitter and strong at first. Taste terrible. But after a few years, for some reason, you enjoy it even. And that's how I feel about death. Some of these stories that you share on your podcast, Mania, what, uh, like, how do you draw inspiration for those and where does the idea for the, the story come from? You mentioned Wikipedia, but mm-hmm. uh, you're obviously, like you say, using a bit of poetic license with some of the, the actual stories. Are you just sifting through Wikipedia or are you, <laughs> what are you doing? Well, it's kind of a, ri- a wide range of things. A lot of, I try to get, usually when I am choosing a topic, I try to not just go online and just see random articles. So I usually pick up books that feature stories or events or usually just nonfiction history books. And if I see a character or an event that was, okay, that was, that stood out. Then I'll go into the deep dive and try to find books, articles, and research on that particular subject. And it's really just whatever just catches my interest. Yeah. And as far as the ones that you've created, do you have any favorites or, or ones that you at the do you complete them? Like obviously with your fantasy book, you wanted to put that away because you weren't happy with it. Which from a you know craftsman of any description often they look at their work and sometimes feel it's always incomplete. So mm-hmm. anything where you've written it and you've gone that I really enjoyed that process and that is finished. Is it, are they all yeah. finished in your eyes? In my eyes? Well, in an ideal world, I would have the time and energy to write a book about every single, every single episode that I've done because they're all just, they're all, all those characters deserve, you know, a novel to be written about them. I would have, I would love to do that. But I think the one that I've that's always stood out to me is the fourth episode called the the Art of Resurrection. It's about galvanism and Luigi Galvani, and it was during this time period where people suspected that they could resurrect a human body with electricity, and it was some of the inspiration for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it's just a fascinating narrative because the the um, the laws at the time prohibited anatomists from studying anatomy on human cadavers, so preventing scientists from discovering and trying to pursue truth about how the human body functions. So there was this quarrel between um, keeping bodies sacred and studying them for the benefit of the living. And during all that, this wild goose chase of how to resurrect the dead. And it, it was just so fascinating because out of that quarrel became came this um this profession called resurrectionists resurrectionists were these these uh i guess rogue undertakers who would go and steal corpses from graveyards and deliver them to universities to be studied you know under the veil of night and underneath the law and they would get a lot of money for it and then the university would get to do their experiments see if they could bring a body back to life or just map out the the human body and I just found that whole that whole thing was just, you know, we're talking about truth is stranger than fiction. That is incredibly bizarre and thrilling. And yeah, I loved writing and at finishing that episode. 
Mm, it's uh, a part of human history that a lot of medical discoveries were actually found through grave diggers uh, stealing corpses mm-hmm. from 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 graves taken <laughs> yes. to universities. So it's a it, it's an example again. That's a that's a societal mask, and you're probably unmasking a lot of truths that mm-hmm. people just forget. We tend to have. I'm a big believer that society and culture. Um, and civilization, if you can ever use that word, because I think mm-hmm. even what we're talking about here demonstrates that we're not as civilized as we of think. That's a, really, yeah. that's a really <laughs> fascinating word that we tend to give ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of those things that when you actually look back in history, we're not as civilized as we actually thought. And even to this day, we might be thinking we're living a civilized life, but mm. 100 to 200 years, there'll be someone sitting... I don't know whether it'll be a vodcast, podcast, right. headcast, and probably have some, <laughs> yes, some uh, kind of chip some for chip, sure. Yeah, and, and virtual cast. And, uh, and someone will be listening to someone else or experiencing the story as mm-hmm. opposed to listening to it. And they're going to go, man, 200 years ago, those people were so uncivilized. So Yeah, that's interesting. I think, I think the problems that we're facing right now are sort of we're seeing through the internet and everything, we're seeing just how amoral we can be on a mass scale. Whereas before, because people just simply didn't have that outreach unless you were insanely wealthy in, you know, in previous centuries, you only had to worry about your, your amoral acts on such a small scale, you know, like don't hit your children and don't, don't be a general ass in the streets. You know, the 1700s, man or woman had a hell of a lot less to worry about than the, the, the you know, the moral consequences of, of us today, you know, choosing a, a, a manufacturer on Amazon who is, who is, has you know, basically slave conditions producing the products that you're buying. So it's it's quite terrifying because today our our moral discrepancies are very subtle and yet quite sinister. And especially the working class, you know, we don't understand to the extent how much we're perpetuating it. So you're right, you know, 200 years from now, hopefully, our morals have evolved and we've gotten aware enough how to produce a society that isn't that isn't uh, so imbalanced in that way, we probably will realize just how bad we were. You obviously read a lot as well. Try to. <laughs> you try to. So growing up, what were some of the things that you, like you mentioned games, but mm-hmm. I'm imagining with your vocabulary that you are an avid reader. That's just an assumption. Is that correct? Yes, it's increasingly difficult to fit into my schedule, but I, I certainly try to read quite a bit. I, I guess it's probably the majority of my reading comes from my research that I do. Uh, have you previously, were you previously a reader beyond the research side of things? Like, did you read oh, a lot of, growing up? Oh, of course. Yes. Yes. I, I grew up on, on quite a bit of, I also read a lot of fantasy and, and fiction and, and things like that. And I was fortunate enough that the, the schooling I'd gone to loved to force a lot of the classics on us. So I got quite a few of those knocked out as well. That was nice. Um, yeah, I really my taste for books is is quite extensive. I don't really have besides I suppose maybe erotica things like that. Um, I will I will try to find at least one good thing about an author or a book and just really enjoy it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any inspirational authors or books that you feel sparked your journey into writing? Like anything that inspired you and said you know, I, A, I could either do this or B, I really respect this person. I'd love to be like them one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, well, as a, 
I was really influenced by dark romanticism. So the, the writing that came out of like the, the mid 1800s. So he's such a cliche, but I loved Edgar Allan Poe. There was something deeply narcissistic about his writing style and how he was just so in his own world. I loved that he wrote in such a way that was sort of defying what everyone else wanted to read. You know, he was playing off of his own passions, not what was selling. He was really poor and desperate most of his life. Uh, because of that. So despite the opportunities he, opportunities he had with his poetry and his writing, he there's a story about him breaking up wood in his apartment just so he could throw something into the fireplace to stay warm some nights, you know, breaking up furniture. And I love that he was so sworn to this idea of telling stories of haunting and of paranoia and of deep mental psychosis uh, that it was more important to him to do that and tell those stories than it was to make a living. I loved that. Mm, so I see that deep. with passion. I see that with passion a lot. I can tell you there's a lot of people that have forked out a lot of money just to mm-hmm. pursue something that, that either returns value to someone else or themselves, where most people would have just said, I'd rather keep the, keep the money. So, Absolutely. I certainly understand that. The passion. This is the interesting thing about passion as well with, from speaking to people. And this is, by the way, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm actually researching a book. So I'm writing, I'm a journalist and I'm writing a book. So a lot of my interviews are actually preparing the, the background for the book. So maybe you'll make the content. Sorry, we're just going to get him up here so he doesn't cry. We're good. That's all right. So the thing that I've noticed about uh, people with a passion is that passions themselves some people think following your passion is bad advice but i i don't think so i think that it's only bad advice if you think you're going to necessarily make money out of it so Mm. people have if you're linking your passion to making money and people say i'm going to follow my passion because i want to make money that's probably bad advice but passion delivers so much more than the potential to make income or derive income from it. Edgar Allan Poe is the perfect demonstration of that. So I'm happy you brought that up because Mm -hmm. he demonstrates that he was doing it for all the other reasons than money and people who have a passion, not everyone who has one necessarily sees a financial end in it. And I think Mm -hmm. that passion has more value. Um, You extract the value out of it you want like people are often asking me and i've had people recently saying how are you making money from your podcast right that is i'm not and they're going what's Mm -hmm. your roi like what's your return on investment and i Mm -hmm. said return on investment is that i actually love talking and interviewing people so Mm -hmm. so that's of course beyond any book i may write or beyond any viewer that i may have i Mm -hmm. like like doing this, like I like doing the process because I learn. So now, right now, I'm actually learning something. So that's my ROI. Yeah, <laughs> there's so, a return. Yeah, learning from you. So one thing that a lot of people, a lot of artists do, they don't tend to worry about, but it seems that most of the most successful artists on the planet, it's actually in death that their greatness was realized. Would you, yes. <laughs> are you... Are you seeing that? Does that concern you as an author that potentially you could be writing for a long time like an Edgar Allan Poe and and, and then no one will notice your work and, and mm. then find that there is life after death but you won't be around <laughs> because there is nothing for you after death? Well, um, you know, 
my perspective on it is that there's a very real argument to be made about what you get out of living a life with as much passion as possible. Um, and that's simply well-being and contentment. You know, you talk about your, your return is, is learning from people and, and talking to people. So you have the, the raw enjoyment of something. I think you could get quite analytical about it in saying that, you know, instead of going for a job that was that was safe or that was financially secure, I played on the edge a little bit more, but I enjoyed living every single day of my life. And I believe there's a lot of people, uh, especially in modern Western societies, who pursue jobs that are safe and that are societally more acceptable. Something you can go to a, you know, a party at Saturday evening and be proud to say, oh, yes, I'm the, the manager of this firm and this bank, that sort of thing. Um, but if you're living a passionless life and that sort of thing doesn't feed you and give you a lot of value outside of the finances, I think that it's kind of a zero-sum game. Sure, you have the security and you have the status, but you're not, if you're not enjoying your life, what, what the hell are we doing? It doesn't make any sense to me. So to me, it's quite lucky for people who are actually passionate about something or a career, which makes a lot of money. I think it's good for them. For a lot of other people who are sort of left to, you know, artists, these kind of poor, tormented souls who feel so guilt-ridden and so unhappy when they're not creating something, it's really important to try to find a life that you can carve out where you are creating every day so that you're getting that enjoyment, you're getting that fulfillment. Because in my opinion... Nothing else is more important. Uh, is there anything that you would like to say to my audience, my, and, and obviously you'll be sharing this with your audience, as to why they should go and listen to your Mania podcast? What are some of the things you're trying to help them understand about both life and death? I think a large part of it does revolve around just passion. And I think that no matter what art or what somebody is creating and bringing into the world when they do it with their genuine enthusiasm joy and fascination there's something infectious about it i know that whenever i read a good book or even just a book that i could tell someone's worked hard on i immediately want to start writing myself or whenever i watch a movie that was extremely well put together i i want to go start doing something creative and with music it's exactly the same it's just sort of this infectious feeling so if i had to try to convince somebody whether they were into horror or the macabre or history or not to listen to my show it would be that well i'm the person who comes home after a 12-hour shift and, and pours everything into doing that and making that happen and hopefully it can have that effect on people who are listening that regardless of what their interests are it'll be inspiring to them to do something within their own medium. When do you think you'll be ready to put pen to paper and actually write a full novel? You know, I hate the people who say that they don't have enough time. And to me, it does feel like a logistical thing or rather just a, really just a rather, uh, a, sorry, a problem of a preference right now and what I can do in a day's time. I work about 48 hours a week, and then the rest of the time goes into podcasting, creating the stories and researching and producing. So something big would have to happen to open up, you know, another 
eight hours a week to get me to 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 start doing a novel again. But the the itch is getting pretty insufferable these days. So it may something might just fall by the wayside and sacrifice for it. No worries. I'll finish up our interview there. I really appreciate your time, Harlequin Grimm. And absolutely looking forward to. Uh, I'm going to actually listen to your podcast. I started listening, and and it is quite addictive, if I can say that. So I do encourage my uh, listeners and or viewers to check out Mania, which is the podcast that uh, Quinn here is actually hosting and and presenting, and uh, and he is doing a great job as far as the narrative goes and writing the content for that. Um, and does a great job of narrating it as well. So um, excellent job on on that and what you're doing. And also thanks for burying our loved ones and <laughs> helping helping put them helping put them to rest, regardless of what you believe. It's a thank you because I, I imagine it, it it is thankful. There'd be people thanking you, but it's probably thankless at the same time because you're probably behind the scenes in the, in the environment. And right now, you may, you're laughing at it because it's it's there is irony in thanking someone for burying the dead, but yeah, it absolutely. is an important role in society, and it's one that we don't speak about. So mm. that's one when when you responded to my call for guests. Uh, I actually, I always rebound ideas off my mum. She's my biggest, <laughs> and she was interested in the podcast. And she said, "Oh, you got to speak with him." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll definitely go down that path and talk about the taboo subject of of, of life and death." And mm. uh, I do appreciate you giving your time and and energy, so that even if I have one super fan, which is my mum, at least she's. She's managed to hear the story and hopefully she does listen to audio books and podcasts. So mm-hmm. I'll be putting her onto your podcast. So. <laughs> well, bless your mom. Bless her heart. She sounds like a wonderful and very smart woman. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a real honor and pleasure. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded. I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.